Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. This morning, we continue our teaching series called Through It All, and it's a study of the book of Habakkuk. Pastor Noah kicked it off last week, and so we're going to continue that here this morning. Now, Recently, the church staff has been working to further understand and develop a tool or resource called the spiritual spectrum, and that's going to be on the screen behind me. And this tool is used to chart someone's spiritual journey prior to making a decision for Christ at the point of conversion, and then the steps they might take toward further growth and development in their faith. And so the cross right in the middle represents that point of conversion when they accept Christ. The right side represents the steps towards spiritual growth and development. And then the left side represents the five stages or phases people typically go through before accepting Christ. Now, as much as I would like to say that our staff came up with those five stages or phases prior to someone becoming a follower of Christ, we did not, right? We, that's, that's not ours. Uh, these phases that people go through prior to conversion has been thoroughly researched and developed by Don Everett and Doug Shop, who wrote the book, I Once Was Lost. And so their research was simply adopted and implemented in the spiritual spectrum. And so I want to then focus on the left side of that chart and highlight some of the steps people take prior to putting their faith and trust in Christ. And so you have the negative five, right, in the far end of the left side, that negative five on the number line or spiritual spectrum indicates those who might be skeptical of Christians or Christianity. You might know people who fit that description. And before they're going to make any progress toward becoming a follower of Jesus, right, they need to get to know and trust a Christian, because they are skeptical about things of faith. Now, just for clarity, and this is super important, the negative number is not meant to communicate that there is something negative about people at this stage. It simply shows that they're further from having a relationship with Jesus. These are people who live at the corner of unsaved and uninterested. They might be awesome right? They might be fantastic people, but they don't yet have any interest in Jesus. Now, the negative four on the spectrum is for those who are curious or have questions about faith matters. The negative three signifies those who might be open to change. They are willing to explore if Jesus might be able to meet their own personal needs, the negative two represents those who are seeking after God. They're actively looking for answers and trying to figure out if Jesus can actually save them. And then the negative one indicates those who are almost ready to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, for those of you who accepted Christ maybe as teenagers or in your young adult years or even into adulthood, you might look at that chart and identify with various steps. So you might see your parts of your story on that chart. You might remember, hey, I, I remember when I was skeptical of Christians, when I thought they were weird, maybe it was a cult, some interesting things going on, uh, and I wanted nothing to do with that. You might remember those days. You might remember what took, well, what happened in your time in your life that you, you started to get curious about it, though. You started to ask 
some questions. And then maybe you got to a point where you were open to change or some things that were going on in your life. It was no longer working for you. And so you were open to maybe doing things differently and maybe then seeking after some answers. And and you finally got to a place where you're like, you know what? I'm ready. I believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm gonna put my faith and trust in him. Now, even if you see part of your story on that spectrum, of course, not everyone's faith journey is represented in this exact way. But this is a common process for many who come to know the Lord. Now, we don't have time to fully unpack each of these stages, but I do want to highlight the curiosity phase, that that negative four phase. And during this particular stage, people tend to be more willing to entertain matters of faith. And their curiosity about faith matters might even drive them or inspire them to do some research of their own. And it's in this particular phase that people often have lots of questions. They might have a specific question about the character of God. They might have a question about whether or not Jesus is actually God's son. They might have questions about the creation of the world or the reliability of Scripture. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, of course, for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we know that becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that all of our questions are answered. I mean, in fact, the longer we're Christians, it's likely the more questions you have. And we're going to be wrestling with questions or various elements of doubt for our entire lives on this side of heaven. Now, one of the most common or difficult questions people face, whether prior to coming to know the Lord or even after they've become a Christian, is addressed, this particular, one of those difficult questions is addressed in the book of Habakkuk. And last Sunday, Pastor Noah kicked off week one of this series called Through It All. And during his talk, we learned that Habakkuk raises questions that people have been wrestling with for centuries. Where is God in the midst of evil? If God is in control, why does evil win so often? Or why does God allow those who are evil to prosper? How can a just God ignore injustice? If you weren't here last week, man, I would encourage you to go back and listen to week one of this series. You can do that a couple of different ways. You can jump on our website, lifepoint.org, and listen and watch the message there. Or if you're a podcast person, you can search LifePoint Elk Grove and listen via podcast. But whether you are here or not, allow me to provide some recap of last week so that as we move forward, we're all on the same page. You see, Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah. And he is living during a time where sin is rampant among God's people. They were worshiping idols. They're sacrificing children to pagan gods. They're ignoring God's law altogether. It was ugly. And that's putting it mildly. And so in light of this injustice and violence and corruption among the nation of Judah, God's people, people who ought to know better, Habakkuk cries out to God and he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? And perhaps you've asked God similar questions 
as well. Well, in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, we see God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. And God is no longer going to tolerate wrong. He is going to bring about justice and punish the people of Judah for their many sins. However, the means by which that God is going to punish the people of Judah is not exactly what Habakkuk had in mind. See, God has decided to use the Babylonians, this evil and ruthless nation, to punish the people of Judah. And as you would imagine, Habakkuk wasn't too thrilled about God's plan. And sure, Habakkuk wanted God to bring about justice in Judah, but not like this, right? Not like this. And in response to God's plan, Habakkuk says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In other words, the Babylonians are way worse than us. So how can you use them to punish us? What's going on here, God? And this is the primary question found in the book of Habakkuk. And it's a question that's still relevant today. Again, God, where are you in the midst of evil? And what are you going to do about it? Now, Pastor Noah's message concluded with Habakkuk waiting for God's response, which is the focus of our message this morning. And so if you haven't already done so, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles or navigate in your Bible app to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to start off by reading chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 2, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. So before telling Habakkuk the plan, right, what God has in store for the evil Babylonians, God instructs Habakkuk to take some notes. Essentially, God says, write this down. I don't want you to miss this. In fact, I want my response to evil and injustice to be made known to others as well, right? It says so that a herald may run with it. And so while God is going to specifically address the evil of the Babylonians, God's response in chapter 2 informs Christians throughout history that God responds to evil and God responds to injustice. And verse 3 goes on to say, For the revelation, which is God's plan to bring justice, for the revelation awaits an appointed time, It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, we still don't have any specifics regarding God's plan and his response to evil. He said nothing about what he's actually going to do. And yet this verse, but this verse is is so important. Because God insists that he does have a plan. And he will respond to injustice at an appointed time. Right? God says it or or his plan will certainly come. And this verse reiterates one of the points that Pastor Noah made last week. That in the midst of evil, 
God is faithful in punishing those who deserve it. The guilty will not go unpunished. And while that's all well and good, this presents some challenges for us as Christians, as followers of Christ. Because while we know and and could even say, hey, I believe that God is going to bring about justice, that he's going to respond to evil and and pain in the world, I, I can say, yes, I believe that. We still have a desire for revenge. And we still have a desire to bring about our own form of injustice whenever we or someone we love has been wronged or offended, right? Like, God, okay, I understand you're going to do something about it, but you don't, you don't, I got to do something now, though. Like, you don't know how they've offended me. I can't just be walked over like that. No one's going to steamroll me like that. I'm not going to tolerate that kind of disrespect. I need to do something. And yeah, God, you can do it on your time, and you can bring things about, and and yeah, I believe you're going to do something, and that's all well and good. But I got to do something now, right? I got to respond now. The respect on my name, right, it's all on the line. I got to do something. See, we have, a, we have a problem here because that's, that's not how God tells us to respond when we find ourselves in situations like this. We have to trust that God has a plan and that he's going to take care of it. And as, it, as difficult as it may be, we have to apply Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 to our lives, which says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Another reason that this is so challenging for us is is even though we know that God's going to respond, our timeline doesn't usually line up with God's timeline, right? We want God to operate on our terms. God, I want you to respond based on my plan, my schedule, when I think you need to give them the divine butt whooping that they deserve, right? I want you to take care of business now, right? We're all about immediacy. I can place an Amazon order. That item can be on my doorstep the very next day. We want God to operate the same way. Why not? Amazon can do it. God, why can't you? Jeff Bezos has figured it out. Why can't you, God? But our timing is not God's timing. You see, in verse 3, Habakkuk tells, or God tells Habakkuk that his plan to bring the Babylonians to justice awaits an appointed time. And I'm sure that Habakkuk was hoping and praying that that appointed time would happen sooner than later. Because until God brings about justice on the Babylonians, the people of Judah would be living under Babylonian rule for that entire time. So you know this guy was hoping and pleading, God, please do it quickly. However, 
what Habakkuk didn't know at the time is that God's promise to punish the Babylonians wouldn't be fulfilled for nearly 80 years. 80 years. That's a very long time to be waiting on God to do something. Right? 80 years. God, you said you were going to do this. You promised this in your word. What do you mean I have to wait 80 years? And so with that in mind, you might be wondering, well, how is God able to say at the end of verse 3 that his plan will not delay if it didn't take place for 80 years? And that's a valid question, right? I mean, that's, that's a really valid question, but we have to keep two things in mind. It's first is that, that we don't view or experience time as God does. And so while 80 years may feel like a lifetime to us, it's not that long to God. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And second, God's intent in verse 3 is to communicate the certainty of his promise to bring about justice rather than the immediacy of it. He's talking about, hey, I'm going to do something, not when am I going to do it. It's the certainty to bring about his promise. And this raises a question that we got to ask. How should we then respond when the fulfillment of God's promise seems to be delayed? Or how should we respond when evil prevails or when God is silent? Will we despair? Will we take matters into our own hands? Will we be consumed by worry? Will we grow restless? Or will we follow God's instructions both to Habakkuk and to us? Though it linger, wait for it. Wait for it. Will we maintain our belief and trust that God will act and fulfill his promise even when it seems like circumstances, when it seems like according to the circumstances that he's forgotten about us? And I would imagine that some of you are here in this room this morning and, and you're waiting on an answer from God. You're waiting for God to take action now, to heal to do a miracle, to provide a resolution to a problem, to provide a way out. And while I hope and pray that you don't have to wait for 80 years, I do hope that you'll follow Habakkuk's example and choose to maintain and cling to your faith in God through it all. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in just a moment. You jump down to verses 4 and 5, and, and God provides a further description of who will be on the receiving end of the outpouring of his justice that is guaranteed to come. And here he's talking about the Babylonians. And he says, he, or see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. Jump down to verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. 
As Noah mentioned last week, the Babylonians had become this superpower. And this lack of resistance, the fact that no one could stand in their way, has created this arrogant and bloodthirsty nation that could not be satisfied. And while God uses them to accomplish his purpose, God does not condone their actions, their behavior. And these verses only reconfirm that the Babylonians are guilty in the eyes of God and will be held accountable for their actions. However, in the midst of this description of the wayward life chosen by the Babylonians, we find a description of a way of life that those, or that is, that's very different path for some who choose it. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And this verse ought to jump off the page because it is in stark contrast to the surrounding verses that talk about this impending judgment for a people that is evil. And not only that, this verse ought to jump off the page in the larger context of the first two chapters of Habakkuk because think about what is going on. You have the people of Judah, God's people, who ought to know better and they're living screwed up lives. And as a result of that, they're about to get some divine judgment brought their way by the Babylonians who are less righteous than them. And yet with all of that going on, God still says, he calls the righteous to live by faith, to choose faithfulness, even in the midst of awful times. And I can only imagine what must have been going through Habakkuk's mind, what he must have been feeling when he heard these words, but the righteous will live by faith. You see, during the time in which he lived, it would have been easier to throw in the towel and just join in with the rest of the people of Judah, the majority who were living in sin. There would have been very little support for righteous living. The odds were stacked against him. Not to mention, he would eventually be caught up in just a few years in this corporate punishment at the hands of the Babylonians who were about to come invade the people of Judah. And so it would have been easy for him to say, ah, forget it. What's the point anyway? But as I alluded to earlier, Habakkuk clings to his faith in God, even though everything seems to be crumbling all around him. So what about us? How will we respond? The righteous will live by faith. And these words are just as relevant today as they were during Habakkuk's life. Whether good or bad, through it all, the righteous will live by faith. Meaning that, that faith or faithful living ought to dictate, ought to define the way we live at all times. But in order for that to happen, in order for that to be the case, we should probably start by defining faith. Wayne Grudem, author of Systematic Theology, defines faith as trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he said. Or in other words, faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do everything he has promised to do. 
Grudem goes on to say, Biblical faith is never a kind of wishful thinking or vague hope that doesn't have any secure foundation to rest upon. It is rather trust in a person, God himself, based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. This trust or dependence on God, when it has an element of assurance or confidence, is genuine biblical faith. And so, if the righteous live by faith, then faith ought to be a defining attribute in the life of a Christian through it all. No matter what we're going through, we ought to be able to see faith in our lives. And so, what does it look like when we find ourselves going through a a difficult or a tough season like Habakkuk had to endure? What does living by faith in God look like when everything seems to be crumbling all around us? It means that we still believe that God will act even when our circumstances make it seem as if he's forgotten about us. It means that we continue to trust in God even though everything is falling apart. It means that we hang on It means that we don't abandon ship because our expectations aren't being met or our timing isn't God's timing or we have unanswered questions. It means that we continue to draw near to God even when we don't fully understand his plan. And so you get laid off and money is scarce when your kids aren't making godly decisions, when you're facing illness, debt, or relational turmoil, when you're overworked and underappreciated, when you experience hurt in the church, because it's gonna happen, we're all messed up and broken people, when your friends turn their back on you, when you find yourself in a rut that you just can't get out of, It's not time to ditch God because things aren't going well. It's time to hang on. And Rooted describes this as a double-fisted faith. When we have this kind of faith, we're saying to God, whether you choose to act or not, I am going to cling to you with both fists. I'm going to hang on with everything that I have. Because I know that you are a God who is going to do what you say you are going to do. And this is the kind of faith that God deserves. And the kind of faith that his Holy Spirit has the ability to empower us with in every circumstance in our lives. You see, and we got to remember that this kind of faith isn't based on wishful thinking. It's not based on some kind of vague hope. The foundation of our faith in God is God himself and our our trust in what he has said. And so when things aren't going well, we can still have double-fisted faith for a few specific reasons, though this isn't an exhaustive list. Let me give you a couple of these reasons. You see, first, we can have double-fisted faith when things aren't going well because Scripture tells us to expect painful and challenging circumstances. God tells us in advance that things won't go well, right? In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. 
And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God never promised that the life of a Christian would be filled with ease and comfort. In fact, he promised just the opposite. And you and I need to be careful because when we have this desire to pursue ease and comfort, they easily become idolatry that renders us ineffective as disciples of Jesus. Because what happens when we go after ease, what happens when we go after comfort is the devil is sitting there saying, I don't have to worry about them anymore. I don't have to worry about them anymore. They're not going to do anything in their life that draws other people to know Christ. They're all about ease. They're all about comfort. Why would they ever ruffle their own feathers for the glory of God? I don't have to do anything to take them out. They've taken themselves out. That is the danger of pursuing ease and comfort. Bad stuff is gonna happen because we live in a world that is full of sin and it's broken. But rather than allowing that to surprise us or catch us off guard, we should prepare for it. Build our faith now so that when the storms of life come, you can stand firm. And the second reason we can have double-fisted faith in the midst of hardship is because we're not alone. God is with us. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus assures us of his presence, saying, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And third, we can have double-fisted faith because if you've been following Jesus for a while, then you've experienced God's faithfulness before, and therefore, you can trust and know that he will come through for you again. And so is double-fisted faith a characteristic of your life? Are you living by faith in God through it all, in the good times and the bad? And perhaps you're thinking, well, I don't know, or not always, but but I hope you're also saying, that is the faith I want. That is the kind of faith I want, so how do I get it? Well, it starts by asking God to strengthen your faith. Just as the disciples did in Luke chapter 17, we need to pray and, and ask God to increase my faith. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you double-fisted faith in all circumstances. In addition to that, the Bible says that faith comes from hearing the word of God. And so each and every one of us need to strive to, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And can I just be real for a second? If our Bibles remain unopened on a shelf the entire week, and we are never crack open our Bible app the entire week, I just want to be real and tell you, you have no business expecting to have double-fisted faith when everything hits the fan in your life. Don't. Why? Why would you? How silly is that? Like, God, I thought I could operate on my own. Now I need you more than ever. Everything's hit, my, hit the fan in my life, and I've been ignoring you and neglecting you. I don't know how to respond. I have a weak faith because I haven't spent any time with you. So I'm just, just being real. When stuff goes bad, bad if, you, if you haven't been spending time in Scripture, 
Don't expect to have double-fisted faith. It's not going to happen. See, faith is like a muscle. It's like a muscle. If you ain't using it, it's going to get weak. None of us ever get, you know, have this delusion that we're going to wake up one morning and just look at ourselves and we're like, dang, God, you did a lot of work overnight. I'm looking fit. I'm looking swole. Right? Like, I don't even have to run. This is fantastic. Right? No, I'm starting to get to the age where, like, I wake up injured. Like, what the heck happened? <laughs> Why would we think our faith is any different? We have to put in the work. You have to exercise your faith if you want it to grow. Pastor Craig Rochelle recommends that we commit to doing one faith-filled action every day as a way to increase our faith. And last but not least, if you're looking to develop a double-fisted faith, I would encourage you to take the practical step of joining a rooted group this fall. I just referenced that the definition for double-fisted faith comes from the Rooted content. And Rooted is a 10-week small group experience in which you work your way through biblically-based content. You grow in community with other believers and you're encouraged to and challenged to live out your faith. And while that's all well and good, the primary reason that we have Rooted here and we make that available is because it helps to instill in us the habits, the disciplines, the rhythms for living out our faith in every aspect of our lives. It's one of the most spiritually transforming experiences at LifePoint. And we believe in it so much that we want every single person to go through Rooted at some point during their time at LifePoint. And there's going to be plenty of opportunities to join a Rooted group over the next few months because we're asking that every single life group, whether it be this fall or next winter, go through Rooted. And so if you want to have a double-fisted faith, join a Rooted group. And on your way in, you should have received a card that says, I want to have double-fisted faith at the top of it. And if you're interested in joining a rooted group this fall, I would encourage you to fill that out. We already know there's going to be a group on a Sunday morning. We're going to, uh, based on your poll, try to uh, offer another group in a time that fits the majority of you, maybe multiple. If those of you are watching online, you can fill out a link in the chat, and you, you can do that digitally. But this card, filling that out and dropping it off before you leave at one of the exits, this might be your faith-filled action today. And you're just going to say, like, hey, you know what? It's time. Like I've been sitting around here long enough, haven't done much. I need to start growing. I need to be in community. I need to start getting to know people. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill this card out. And when the fall life group season comes around, I'm going to make it a priority to join a rooted group. There's a song by Brian and Katie Torwalt called Prophesy Your Promise. And it drives home what we're talking about this morning. The chorus goes like this. I'm going to sing it for you. No, I'm just playing. I'm not going to sing it for you. It goes like this. When I only see in part, I will prophesy your promise. I believe you, God. Because you finish what you start, I will trust you in the process. I believe you, God. The second verse says, you set a table in the middle of my war. You know the outcome of it all. And when what I faced looked like it would never end. You said, watch the giants fall. See, we know that God communicated his plan to punish both Judah and Babylon for their sins. But Habakkuk didn't have all the details. He didn't know how everything was going to go down. He didn't know that he would have to wait nearly 80 years for God to bring about justice that he promised. However, he clung 
to God's promises. He believed God. He knew that God would do what he said he was going to do, so he trusted him in the process. And during that 80-year period of Babylonian exile, I'm sure Habakkuk would have said, when what I faced looked like it would never end, God eventually comes back to him and says, watch the giants fall. See, you and I might only be able to see a portion of what God has in store for us in this season of life, but he will finish what he started. And he knows exactly what the outcome will be. So trust him. Hang on. He's going to do everything he's promised to do. And he is worthy of our double-fisted faith. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.